Welcome to episode 70 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Sarah Davis. Our topic today is the first season of the Netflix sci-fi horror series, Stranger Things, Ooh, which makes our recording date t- today, Halloween, extremely appropriate. Needless to say, there will be lots of spoilers for the whole season, so if you haven't seen it, press pause, go watch it. It's outstanding. You'll love it. We're going to be discussing the entire first season, which is eight episodes. The second season came out on Netflix uh, this past weekend, but we'll save that for another episode. Joining me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Christina Bieber-Lake. Say hello, ladies, and introduce yourselves. Christina? Hello, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I teach at Wheaton College in the English department, and I'm a member of Generation X, so I have a special interest in Stranger Things. Wonderful. And how are you doing today, Victoria? Hi, uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Uh, Excited to talk about this show. Uh, And as you mentioned, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I'm also excited to hear what Christina has to say since uh, as a millennial, I, I don't really have concrete memories of the 80s. My memories of the 80s are basically just like sounds and colors from toddlerhood <laughs> but okay, uh, why don't you start rubbing it in right now you do <laughs> um no we think you're great uh okay. i i don't mean that you're old i just mean that i am young <laughs> ah. nice. very nice good recovery victoria i'll be here all week All right. Well, while we are all still friends with each other, let me give a brief plot overview. Stranger Things takes place in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana in the early 1980s. We meet four friends, Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and Will, who are playing Dungeons & Dragons. After the game, Will is biking home and encounters something on the road. Will Byers disappears with no trace that night and becomes trapped in an alternate dark reality of their hometown. The rest of the series relates how Will's friends, his mother Joyce, the local sheriff, and a shady government uh, spies try to either get him back or cover up his disappearance. All the while, the local teenagers are trying to find and kill the monster who took Will. The remaining boys, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas, find a girl named Eleven who has supernatural powers such as telekinesis. Eleven helps her new friends while hiding from the shady spy organization that was holding her captive and using her to spy on the commies. Joyce and the boys, Joyce's and the boys' persistence to find Will eventually pays off at the end of the season with Eleven's help. They rescue Will from the shady shadow dimension. This story captured the imagination of the entire country by mixing old tropes in new ways that felt fresh and exciting 
even though the creators, the Duffer brothers, were really paying homage to their childhood influences of horror movies, Stephen King novels, etc. So everybody has a uh, unique experience watching something for the first time. So Christina, tell me a little bit about what did you like about Stranger Things when you first saw it? Well, as I mentioned, uh, I uh, am a member of Generation X, and so the character of Nancy was exactly the age I was in 1983, so I remember all of these things, and my experience of watching it was a lot like watching the Americans. I mean, it's just nostalgia porn. I mean, it's really hard to describe, but I think once you get far enough away from the 80s to actually think that they're not offensive and disgusting, you can go, oh, wow, I remember that. That was kind of cool. Or, oh, I was young once, or those kinds of things. So there was just that immediate appeal. Um, the music, just everything about it felt felt like my youth. Awesome. Okay, what was uh, your first impression, Victoria? Um, so I, I started watching it mostly just because of all the Netflix marketing. The The images looked cool. Uh, it sounded interesting. I had heard that there was a lot of 80s nostalgia in it. Um, and while, while, as I said, I, I didn't really live through the 80s, I do have a lot of fond memories of 80s kid culture um specifically um lots of which shows up in this film um things like et and the goonies um so i i started because of that and then i just really got sucked in um to the story which keeps you on the edge of your seat and uh really has something for everyone because of the three uh intertwining plots that i know we're going to talk about a little bit more in a bit awesome well I uh, saw it for the first time. I streamed it all in two days. And I watched, uh, the first time I watched it, my roommate came down and we watched about two or three episodes uh, or that night. And we're like, oh yeah, okay, okay. We're, we're going to finish watching them uh, tomorrow. And so I, the next day at work, I, I just couldn't wait to continue watching it. So I like watched the fourth episode and then we, got back home and she was like, I don't remember. Did you watch another episode without me? Like, no, no, this is just the next episode. You know, So, um, and the thing I remember feeling about it, just the, the first season came out, I think mid to late July of 2016. And I watched it beginning mid August. And the thing I really remember about halfway through the first episode was, I wish I, I wish I was watching this in October because it just felt so like it felt like it should be fall with like the cold air and like and so it just it not only does it really have a sense of time but I feel like it also has a very seasonal sense this I don't feel like this could take place in May for example mm-hmm. and so because it's set in Indiana right and so Indiana feels like fall and winter (laughs) exactly i would agree and one of the things that we've all kind of talked a little bit about um is that there are a huge number of allusions to other 70s and 80s media throughout this series and in fact if you ever get bored you can watch hours and hours of uh 
YouTube videos where uh, people pick apart all of the microscopic allusions to uh, some of the various media, but we're going to discuss some of the ones that we noticed first or that we we found the most interesting. So, Victoria, why don't you uh, go first with that? Sure. Um, as I said before, um, as someone who's coming from like an, an 80s kid place, I think I noticed the 80s kid movies the most. Um, there's a ton of E.T. Uh, you the, the villains, the suits that the Hawkins Lab villains wear look like the suits um, that the E.T. scientists wear, as do their white vans. Um, when Eleven is being hidden from Mike's mother. He hides her in the closet with the clothes, much like E.T. is hidden. Um, and I, I want to talk about this when I um, sort of delve deeper into my part of the actual plot, but um, her Eleven's outfit during the, the makeover scene is not unlike the Halloween costume that Elliot and company put on E.T. as well. Um, oh yeah, I noticed that one. Uh-huh. Uh, and not just E.T., but also um, there's a ton of Goonies, particularly uh, the character of Dustin is um, physically and kind of emotionally uh, kind of chunk-like from Goonies. Uh, they're both also really, really into chocolate pudding. Um, so that's <laughs> there. Um, and, and one last... Um, one last thing I noticed on first watch, um, episode four is titled The Body, um, which is the name of the story on which the movie Stand By Me is based. Uh, there's a ton of Stand By Me here as well, particularly one shot where the boys are walking along train tracks um, is a, a really mm -hmm. strong um, Stand mm -hmm. By Me visual echo. And uh, one last thing that I, that is not kid movie related, that's 80s teen movie related, uh, that I noticed on second viewing and wanted to know if you ladies noticed. So there's this bit. Um, it's a, a cut between a Joyce scene and a Nancy scene. And so you start with um, Winona Ryder, who plays Joyce, kind of freaking out that her son is gone. And then as we're cutting to Nancy preparing to fight the monster in her garage, you get this pan over a lot of the sports equipment in the Wheeler's garage. And after we leave Joyce, but before we get all the way to Nancy, the camera pauses for like just a second too long on a croquet set. Um, <laughs> which is a reference to, in my mind, Winona Ryder's best role uh, as Veronica Sawyer in Heathers. Did you guys catch that? Oh, yes. Nope, that's good. I didn't <laughs> No, I did not that. see that at all. Um, Heathers is amazing, and I wish that I could talk about it more, but that's the teen movie stuff, so I will not. Sounds like a future episode, Victoria. Oh, Absolutely. no, we can't do Heathers on this show. We'd have to bleep everything. <laughs> Okay, so Christina, what were some of the what were some of the things that uh, stood out to you uh, most as kind of allusions to other other things you've seen before? Well, I want to just talk about the music for a second because uh, it's so stunning how the synthesizer music is just as a time marker, right? From the '80s, I mean, I 
I was in the theater watching Chariots of Fire with Evangelos music, and it just seemed like everything had that same kind of soundtrack. And uh, I mean, <laughs> this is kind of funny and not really germane, but still kind of funny. I was sitting in the theater watching Chariots of Fire, and there was this woman sitting right next to me going, dun 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 you know, along with the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. I'll just never forget that. Um, there apparently, the guys who do the music, there's this big, I saw it on NPR, a big conference or something for these musicians who work in the synthesized music, and the people who do Stranger Things are like these rock stars there. And then, of course, there's just the music from the 80s, the rock music from the 80s uh, that I definitely recognized, and, and some of the songs I hadn't heard in quite some time. And then finally, I just want to point out that the very end of the season, first season, there it's Christmas, and the um, Will is is shaking the gift and saying, "Oh, I know what it is. It's an Atari," and uh, and that just brought a flood back of memories because that's all we wanted for Christmas. We harassed my parents uh, repeatedly, blitzing them that this is all we want, the three children, this is all that the three of us together want for Christmas is an Atari. This had to be 1983, um, 82 or 83. So that just <laughs> just kind of cracked me up because I don't think people today with the ubiquity of cell phones and just you can have a game anytime really recognize how big of a deal it was that you would have a game system in your home. My brother would spend all of his money going to the arcade to play video games, you know, so you actually had to make money to play video games, you know, so that just kind of brought all that back. Did you get an Atari that year? Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. Hooray! The awesome. The Blitz worked. Well, I, I have distinct memories of uh, one year, uh, my brother and I really wanted a Super Nintendo and so we figured out which box it was and so when we were off of Christmas break we had unwrapped like the end of it and so we would pull the box out while my parents were at work play it and then like put it back in at night a classic maneuver and so by the time that and, you know, about a week and a half later maybe only a week when we opened it for Christmas we'd already well not me but my brother had already beaten the game that was my parents had bought. Okay, that's hilarious. That's so, fantastic. That really is. That's wonderful. You know, um, and w- that uh, that kind of attitude of like children kind of one-upping on their parents, I think that is, that's a very, we'll talk more about that later, but that's also a very uh, key uh, theme of mm-hmm. kids being kids and adults really not being aware of it and that innocence of childhood. We'll talk more about that later, but that's definitely a key theme I feel like in this series that, and is one of the things that makes it so compelling. And mm-hmm. um, there, there are so many illusions. One of the ones that I, that I actually really noticed first, uh, there are a couple actually to Jaws. Mm-hmm. So uh, the shot of um, the sheriff uh, Hopper, um, writing out missing child, um, you know, it's really close and it's, you know, incident missing child, um, exactly mirrors, you know, the cause of death in Jaws, you know, shark attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the, the monster that they end up calling the Demogorgon is attracted by blood. Um, and then later Nancy's talking like, oh, it's like, sh-, you know, it's like a shark. So I, I thought, you know, there was a lot of Jaws, definitely a lot of 
ET, which was the one I was more familiar with because I am not actually naturally like a horror movie person. So some of like the like the John Carpenter stuff, I had to I had to look all that up. I you know I didn't naturally know what that was, but yeah, a lot of the ET stuff and you know when Eleven uh, kind of and you're seeing it and uh, these vans coming towards these uh, children on the bikes and you're like, Oh no, they're going to take off. They're going to take off. It's going to be exactly like ET. And I'm ready for it. Like my body is like pumped. Cause it's going to look so cool <laughs> for the bikes to start flying. And then she like flips instead the van. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh. You know? And so there's just, there's so much stuff um, that you get with that. Um, and then obviously uh, there are a lot of uh, musical call outs and, um, and one of the things that I that I always thought was really great about this show is in a world that is currently obsessed with 80s nostalgia, it always looks back on the 80s with a slight, it, at least in most of the media I've seen that's done this, a slight bit of derision. And mm-hmm. can you believe that they thought that or all of the clothing is completely costume? It is mm-hmm. 80s, you know, turned up to 15. And the thing I loved about this show is that it never felt like it was a show that was made in 2015 and was looking back at the 80s. It feels like a really well-made show that happened to be filmed in 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, that's funny because that's the way I felt about the Americans, too. I don't know if you've seen that series, but they did the 80s pretty well, too. I, I want to do an episode on that eventually. I think there's so much to say about that show. Mm-hmm. You know, and that and the sort of the Russians and the threat of the Russians always in the background is an important part of the 80s, you know. And, uh, and, and also now, who knew? Yeah, who knew? Yeah. Um, one of the other things, yeah, that you you get all of you get all of this kind of shady uh, government stuff going on. And then you also have um, a lot of the, the Dungeon and Dragons illusions mm-hmm. of. You know, it's it's an incredible uh, framing device that they use for the entire series. And so at the very beginning, our our heroes, our boys are, you know, they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. And again, in all those Netflix shows, uh, they're like, oh, this one, you know, Lucas is this archetype. Well, Will is that archetype. I, I don't can't get into that. But, you know, it exactly tells us what's about to happen. Right. That. Our Will is confronted with a Demogorgon and he, you know, tries to, you know, throw a, a fireball at him. Just like in the in the show, he tries to fire the shotgun. It doesn't work. He doesn't roll a high enough number and the Demogorgon gets him in the game. And what happens in the very next scene? There you go. You know, he's taken. And then at the end in the framing device, how it works is they're playing another Dungeons and Dragons game. And what do they mm-hmm. do? They get the Thessal Hydra um, and it works this time. And then they end it. And then the boys are like, what about the lost princess? What about the lone knight? There are too many stories that we don't know the end, you know? And so it, the Dungeons and Dragons, I think also, because that, that had Dungeons and Dragons, I think had only been out for about seven or eight years. I think that had come, well, a little more than that. It'd come out, I think in the mid to early seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, you also have throwbacks there. But like I said, we could talk for hours about just uh, these. The only other thing I think I'll add is um, for not only are there lots of Stephen King references, but the font used for the uh, 
for the the title sequence is the same font that is generally that was used on Stephen King novels like Firestarter, all of that. And the episodes are chapters, too. Yeah, the episodes are chapters. And the other thing, uh, Christina, you mentioned the music. Uh, I I read an interview with the Duffer Brothers where they said they're like, and they know that things on Netflix tend to, you know, what do we do? We binge watch them. We watch them one right Mm -hmm. after another. Whereas if this had been on HBO or AMC, they would have gone with a longer title sequence because it was going to be only seen once a week. But because they knew people were going to watch it straight through, they didn't want to have a long, burdensome um, Yes, because then it gets skipped. Then it gets skipped and... Yeah, yeah, and I always listen to it every time because I it's, do too. Yeah, it's really great. I always listen to all the intros if I'm watching Game of Thrones or whatever else. It drives my husband crazy because he would just rather skip them. But I, right. I, I feel like it sets the mood. <laughs> I like it. Oh, exactly. Okay. So w- the thing that we really want to talk about today and the thing that after the very first time I saw Stranger Things and then when I rewatched it in the spring, I, was, I thought I was like, we have to do an episode about this. Um, is, yes, the title of the series is Stranger Things, but one of the Stranger Things about this series is that it has realistic depictions of women in science fiction. And many times, as the as the three of us have talked about on a previous podcast uh, for Ghost in the Shell, that a lot of times women in uh, science fiction don't get a lot of depth. They mm-hmm. are, they either are just, they're, they're, they're bait for gore or they're, you know, they're completely uh, kick-ass robocops, but they don't have a lot of, they don't have a lot of depth. And there there are three main female characters that we have here, um, all have a lot of depth. And each one of them, if we think about it, is in a different story. And then all three of these stories uh, combined at the very end. So uh, we have Joyce Byers, who is the mother of Will, and she, uh, who the boy who went missing and is trapped in uh, what the characters call the Upside Down. And so she is desperately trying to get her son back. Then you have Nancy, the teenager, who is starting to date, and she is uh, figuring out her new relationship. And then we have Eleven, who is just the most amazing little girl, and she is the one with the like the telekinetic powers. And so they're all in a different story, or they think we're, we think they're in a different story, and then it ties up together. So, Christina, why don't you tell us a little bit about Joyce Byers, the storyline she's in, and how she either kind of sub, uh, uh, subverts or kind of plays along with that genre. Sure. Um, first, I want to say something about the character in general and being played by Winona Ryder. If you want to get people from my generation to watch a series, it would be difficult to have something a little bit more quirky and more powerful than choosing Winona Ryder because she was such an outre type of, of person um, and in some ways epitomized the quirkiness of the 80s for lack of a better word. And it's so funny because she is in a lot of ways like her son, the older son character. Um, I'm losing his name at the moment. Help me out here. Jonathan. Jonathan. Jonathan, you know, who incidentally 
just got caught on the way to the premiere with some cocaine in his luggage and got sent back to England. Did you guys hear about that? Oh, I did not. Yeah, that is that. Honestly, yeah. that seems like the kind of thing that his moody character would actually probably do That's anyway. Exactly what I was thinking. And I mean, to my mind, when I saw this show, I, I saw him as kind of like the twin could have been the twin of of Ali Sheedy and Breakfast Club. You know, that kind of burnout thing. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? They almost look alike, too. Exactly. So that was kind of funny. The but hair and the face. Writer, yeah. You know, I mean, she she's. <laughs> She got arrested for shoplifting, you know, in 2001. And, and so here she's playing this character who's now the mother of, you know, children who are a little bit younger than she was during that same era. So it's just so interesting to have her take over a motherly role. And then, of course, the plot that you're talking about is the conspiracy plot, which was, you know, my generation's one of the first to really just be so worried about government conspiracy, the post Watergate era, um, Iran Contra scandal, all of that. And just feeling like the government is trying to pull one over on you. And that is definitely the plot that she's inhabiting. And what I love about her as a character is first of all, I think Winona Ryder does a really great job playing this person who everybody just thinks is crazy. And, <laughs> She's clearly not because it's quite clear that these monsters are real from the outset. There's never any doubt in the way that the uh, especially you know, the, in uh, episode three with like the scene with like the Christmas lights. Absolutely. Not only is that visually stunning, the way she plays it is just it she's is good. outstanding. Yeah, she's really good and better than I expected her to be, quite frankly. And uh, really, I've really enjoyed watching her performance, but I've also enjoyed watching her performance just as a mother of that age of us, I have that age of a son right now, and I would do anything to um, get him back. You know, I would I would risk being seen as absolutely crazy by everybody to do that, and so I could definitely relate to her performance of that, and it was just kind of this funny flipping feel. You know, it's like, what would you do if everybody else just thought you, you were just completely out of your brain? And um, in the last couple of episodes when she uh, she's in that alternative reality and Jonathan is in the house and Jonathan says, can't remember. I think Jonathan is calling for his mom and she can hear him, right? She can hear her own children anywhere. And I'm like, that's exactly what being a mother is. You, and you what does it say? Hear your own children. What does it say about the difference real quick, the, the difference between Winona Ryder's uh, character, Joyce as a mother, and then, uh, Cara Bueno's uh, character so she's uh, Mike's mother that mm-hmm. you know uh, Joyce can hear her children talking to her from different dimensions she is mm-hmm. that closely connected with them but Mike's mom doesn't know that her daughter uh, has a new boyfriend and is sneaking out to have sex doesn't yep. know that there is a extra person living, at ho- living in her basement She yep. she's like it's the close. parallels between them and you know one of them has this very well ordered middle class life yep but she's very disconnected from all of, from her family and her children especially that husband and then you oh, have man. Mr. Wheeler is the worst oh I know we're talking about the, the women right now but Mr. Oh, Wheeler is so terrible He's I awful. know and He's like the difference awful. between her and Joyce who is obviously 
Um, when you see the difference between the houses in the first episode where you see Mike's big house and then they kind of bike and then uh, you see this kind of much smaller, um, uh, obviously poorer home that the buyers yes. live in. Yes, and I think that is a very interesting uh, tack to take because it's so opposite of the way people tend to think about the burnouts or the poorer people or what you know the the people of that class that they're trying to portray versus the middle class you know suburban mom and it just flips that on its head and I love it you know which is yeah again one of the great uh one of the great things this series does is that it, it flips a lot of those uh traditional expectations that we have Exactly. And so and, and and also to think about women in the 80s, you know, this is a big moment in feminism. And I as I was watching the series for the second time, you know, the first um, season and I got to the last episode, there's this great scene where Matthew Modine comes in and talks to Joyce and he says, you know, we need your help. We're going to do, you know, and she just lays it out. She's just like, I'm not putting up with this crap. You have taken my son somewhere and you've done this and this and this. And no, you know, just go to hell is what she says to him. And I'm like, yes, that's a strong mother. You know, she's not going to put up with this. That was a great feminist moment. Yeah, I I agree. And I I think this is also about class um, just as much as it is about feminism. But um, I think it's important to note that Joyce works outside the home and Mrs. Wheeler, mm-hmm. I can't recall yeah. her first name, um, doesn't seem to. Um, also, Mrs. Wheeler, every time we see her at dinner, is drinking a glass of wine. Um, so there's ah. a, a, a sort of, uh, which, which is not a judgment um, from me, I should say. I am drinking a beer as we're recording. So I'm not... So jealous right now. Um, I'm not judging her alcohol use uh what i am saying is that there might be a, a, a at least a quasi mother's little helper vibe going on um with, with well, i have to say if with I mrs were wheeler mr wheeler i'd be drinking um all the time. absolutely absolutely <laughs> oh what a drip that guy is well think about this though like i know joyce's name like she is her own independent character but mrs wheeler i can only think of her in her relation that she serves to other people so she's mike's mom Nancy's mom like mm-hmm. I have watched this series because I love it legit like this was, I think was the fourth time that I've seen it and mm-hmm. I really have no clue what her name is and th- they say it it's not like it's never actually mentioned but mm-hmm. I just can't figure out like you know she's Mike's mom she's Nancy's mom if I were to say her first name and just say that for y'all wouldn't know who she was but when I say Joyce Mm-hmm. You know, she is very much her own independent character. Her name's Karen. I just looked it up. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, hardly remembered that. I mean, she's more stereotyped. She's obviously not a bit as the protagonist in the same way that Joyce is, but she is just stereotyped too. You know, both the whole family is in a lot of ways, or at least the parents. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even even the other characters in the show, I, Nancy has that whole speech about like, my mom settled for the house at the end of the cul-de-sac and she married oh, yes. my dad because he was well connected and I want more than that, um, which mm-hmm. is a, a very like angsty teen thing to mm-hmm. say. Um, so I, I don't I don't want to agree too much with with the stereotype of um, Karen. I don't want to, you know let that uh go unquestioned mm-hmm. and i think um and i think it is important to to note that i mean she has scenes where she definitely 
shows that she loves her children. She just does not have the connection with them that Joyce does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she tries. She does better eventually. Like she, yeah, at the end, she talks. She finally talks to um, Nancy about Steve, um, uh, and she eventually has an actual conversation with with Mike about grieving um, Will and, you know, and those kinds of emotions. I wonder how much of the sort of psychobabble of the early 80s, you know, the I'm okay, you're okay, enters into her character too, because she's the one who's like, you can talk to me. When I watched it the second time, she kept saying that, you know, to her children, you know, you can talk to me anytime you want. And and yet she's so disconnected, you know what I'm saying, from the kids. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, when she said that, I kept saying, like, you're telling that to them, but what about the way you act around them exactly. is, is reinforcing that? Like, nothing. Exactly. She's super nothing. checked out. Yep. Okay, is there anything else we want to add for uh, Joyce's uh, character arc or her, her the, kind of the story or movie she's in? I, I had a, a question for Christina, if that's okay. Yeah. Of course. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, about the Christmas lights and the kind of uh, communication that she has with Will. Which is essentially a Ouija board. Right. Oh, uh, yes. Um, so, so Ouija boards, I think, um, are a, a piece of the, the culture of the moment. Uh, but I wanted to ask how much you thought that um, communication with the beyond – um, was another writer callback in terms of Beetlejuice. Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, uh, she was always cast in these kind of funky roles like that in Beetlejuice. I think it's also a callback to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which yes. you got to understand, for people of my generation, that movie yeah. was just huge, huge. I mean, it, we just couldn't wait for it to come out. You know, I mean, it was just like, and that boo-boo-boo-boo-boo, you know, I can't remember, I'm, how the tune goes but you know everybody knew that tune and it was the synthesized kind of thing and so to me that's a big part of what's going on in that particular scene and there was another thing that I wanted to say about that about um shoot this just, just escaped me maybe I'll think of it as we're going forward well the only thing that I would add is uh definitely uh Joyce is the Joyce's uh pushing and making sure that nobody one is forgetting that Will's gone and that eventually, I think maybe episode five or five or six or so, that's when she kind of finally like teams up with Hopper and they go on what I like to, to go visit the woman I like to call like Miss Exposition because they just go see her and they, she just gives them all of this background information <laughs> and mm-hmm. then they end up leaving. Um, but yeah, they have all they have all sorts of uh of stuff going on in terms of like, they're the ones really kind of dealing with the big government stuff. Um, but one of the things I thought was interesting is Joyce really kind of, she has, sees all this supernatural stuff going on, but she doesn't actually have, and you know, to the same extent Nancy does this too later in her storyline, we'll talk about that. Joyce doesn't really have a way to talk about it. Whereas when some of the, like there's almost just as much weird supernatural stuff happening to, to the boys, to the kids, but they have, but because of like their interests, they actually have a vocabulary to express it and it doesn't seem mm-hmm. as weird to them. That's such mm-hmm. an interesting oh. point. I just remembered what I was going to say because you had mentioned the Ouija boards. 
Um, there's when I was that age, I remember uh, somebody at a birthday party, uh, my birthday party gave me that as a gift and my mom just freaked out and I had to return it. And also we were not allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons, you know? Yeah, I, was I wasn't this, either. Yeah. There was this very strong sense from my mom. Like this is, this is real. This is meant, you know, this is dealing with the demonic forces we're not going to do, you know, it wasn't just that I don't want to be talking about Ouija board. She actually believed that this was going to be like connected to Satan, you know, in some way. So I, I definitely had the feeling of, of watching this show. And, and I kind of had a little bit of a, what do you call a memory? That it's a feeling memory. You know, I just felt the way I felt a little bit then just yeah. a little, almost like short of breath, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. uh, because it, it evoked that so well. No, I totally understand what you mean. Um, well, the, the next kind of movie or like series that we have is, so we, so with our kind of our three, uh, our three stories each go along with a different age range of character. And so our next awesome, amazing female character is Nancy Wheeler. So she's the older sister of Mike, who is kind of the lead of, uh, the lead of the, the, the younger children. And Nancy is pretty, and a good student and all that kind of stuff and obviously comes from a good family. And at the very beginning of the of the show or the very beginning of the series, uh, we find out that Nancy has just begun to not date, but, you know, hang out. I say hang out with air quotes as the kids do now um, with kind of a much more like popular guy. His name is... Um, Steve Harrington, and I just have to point out that Steve Harrington has the most amazing hair of any person in the entire world. It's just so full and like amazing. And if my hair could look like that, it would, it would, my life would change. Um, but Nancy begins dating him, and we kind of start out with a John Hughes movie. Um, we, so it's like Pretty in Pink, essentially, is we start out with this, and this popular girl guy is interested in her and she starts hanging out with him and his friends. But along with Nancy, his comes stupid, stupid friends, the worst people in the world. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. Um, and so mm-hmm. along with Nancy is everyone's like, if everybody's actual favorite character is probably 11, everyone's backup favorite character is Barb. Yay. All hail Yay, Barb, Barb, queen of nerds. All, everybody nerds. loves Barb. We all yes. love Barb because we... We were Barb. Everybody thinks that oh, they're Oh, for Barb. real. And so what... Ha- Barb... Everybody was very... So what happens to Barb is at the end of episode two, Nancy... Uh, they've got, uh, Barb goes with her friend Nancy because she wants to be a good supportive friend. She doesn't want her friend to be doing anything unsafe. And also because she thinks that Steve is totally shady and she's not because wrong. Because he is. And so because that's he the, is. And so what ends up happening is Barb tries to kind of participate with, you know, their, um, uh, their, uh, their drinking beer, Barb gets injured. And so what ends up happening is, uh, you know, they're fooling around, fooling around, like just like playing around and like jump in the pool. And so they go in and it's very, and it's very uh, heavily uh, hinted that, Hey, we're going to like be, uh, Fooling around, having sex, do at least doing things that w- they know their parents probably wouldn't want them to. And Nancy's like, Barb, you can go. It's fine. I'm just going to stay here. I'll catch a ride. Barb's like, no, no. And she is 
she's being a good friend because she does not want her other friend to be unsafe. And so she's sitting out there and there's a drop of blood and Barb gets taken by the Demogorgon and she mm-hmm. gets taken to the same place Will is, which is called the Upside Down. And everybody just cannot believe this. And we're also upset about this. And the reason that I think that people get so upset about her death is that usually in teen like monster movies or slasher movies or zombie movies, the girl, the first person the to girl. get killed That's is the, like the, the slutty girl. Sex. And so there's always this sense of like justice. Well, you know, she shouldn't have been doing that. But Barb's doing the thing that all of us would have been doing. Barb is is trying to take the good, moral, right decision. And she is punished by a cold, uncaring universe. And and Nancy and Steve still have sex. Yeah. And And nothing nothing happens to them. And the two scenes are parallel. They're they're, uh-huh. they're cut in and out of each other, clearly trying to evoke that horror, you know, idea that in a horror film, if you have sex, you die, you know, and instead it's Barb who dies. Yeah. And so, again, that's that's a trope that we yep. that we get turned on its head. Yep. And so that storyline quickly becomes a John Carpenter movie, such as The Thing, which came out in 1982, the year before the show takes place. And we actually even see a picture for the movie The Thing in Jonathan's room. Oh, that's right. Um, and so what ends up happening is also I feel so bad for uh, Barb because you know the whole town loses their mind when Will leaves and they're like, well, this straight A student must have just like decided to run away for no reason. Yeah, mm-hmm. poor Barb. Whatever. I thought we were going to talk about this. Nobody talks about Barb being gone and dying. Yes, it's crazy. But b- before we leave the the kind of John Hughes of it all, can I can I talk about some of the music cues that happen? Oh um, yeah yeah yeah. Go, tell us more about that, Victoria. Okay. Um. So first of all, during the party scene, um, it's like it's it's peak eighties reference. Um, Steve shotguns a beer that he has yes. to open with an opener because it doesn't have a pull tab yet That's while right. I melt with oh, you, you <laughs> uh, while I melt with you is playing and yep. Nancy looks at him and says you're a cliche so there's a, a little bit of um, audience stand in there and then um, we, we mentioned the sort of sex death punishment thing um, the camera angles there are very nightmare on Elm Street like the yes. I, I don't know if it's the first one or the second one but whichever one um where johnny depp has sex with that blonde girl um i i haven't actually seen them but i know the the feel that you're talking that about. one and and so while those two intercut scenes are happening um bar being sucked into the upside down and steve and nancy having sex uh richard marx's waiting for a girl like you is playing yes, so yes. so it's about steve and nancy but it's also about the monster waiting for barb yeah, yes, it's so funny. Plus, I have to point out she dies in stirrup pants. I bet you guys have never worn stirrup pants. I have worn stirrup pants. I wore them when I, I was in the third grade and my mother picked out all my clothes for me. Okay, I was going to say I wore them in kindergarten. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> I made and a I think, conscious fashion choice to wear stirrup pants. Well, and Barb definitely, I feel like, is the one who looks the most 80s. Oh, in terms of her hair and her glasses. And uh, they're obviously oh, yeah. really trying to Barb's, go for the nerd effect. Barb's but rocking again, the mom jeans. Yeah, but again, <laughs> it's never done as like a, can you believe, like the camera never treats it in a way of like, can you believe she dresses so, like, there's, it's never, that's never provided. It's just, this is who she is. And so I really love that. 
And the other thing that you end up with with uh, this particular storyline is so Nancy is obviously very upset that her 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 BFF, what she you know kind of comes to, and you can have that she has this look that was like, oh, this was not all I thought it was going to be when she's done with Steve the next morning. Steve did not deserve that new bra she bought, y'all. Uh, <laughs> oh, definitely no. not. I'm just saying. And so what ends up happening is she kind of goes through this. She's trying to kind of find her friend and she very quickly wonders if there's any similarity, but, or uh, anything with uh, the disappearance between Barb and Will. And so she ends up befriending and talking to Jonathan uh, Byers. So uh, Will's older brother, and they kind of end up teaming up to fight this, uh, fight this monster and Nancy really kind of comes out of her shell in terms of becoming this very, um, she's shooting a gun, she's setting things on fire, she's making, you know, uh, she's making some much more adult, uh, mature decisions than she was earlier. Um, at one point, um, she is, uh, Steve gets very jealous that uh, she's hanging out with this loser Jonathan instead of a cool, cool dude like him. And so he kind of participates or at least allows um, or encourages some uh, fairly significant slut shaming to happen mm-hmm. to Nancy. And I, I have to admit, even in my own head, you know, that happens and she's, you know, horrified. And I kind of wanted to be like, well, what did you think was going to happen when you started hanging out with these jerks? Did you actually think they were going to be nice to you? Like, and so I was like, no, no, like, I still need to feel bad for her, but come on. What did you think these people were like? Did you think they were going to be nice? Did you, mm-hmm. um, how naive were you? It, and it's so, also, I think important to, we haven't named Steve's friends yet, but I think it's important to do that because their names are Carol and Tommy H. Do you guys notice that that Nancy routinely calls him not just Tommy, but Tommy H, which is a, a thing that you do for like a certain period of years in your life and then it completely goes away? That yeah. that, that to me really underscores um, how much of a kid Nancy still is, even though she definitely gets tough um, later in the series. Uh, there's that and her immediate response when she and Jonathan are trying to figure out what the deal is with the upside down and the monster is she pulls out the encyclopedia and like goes into nerd mode. So we know that Nancy hasn't sort of completely given herself over to yeah. this new cool world. She's still kind of the kind of person that Barb is or was at least part mm-hmm. of her. I would agree. And then what she it ends up being that, you know, Nancy goes on this, like, it turns into, like, a vengeance quest for her. Like, she's going, like, once she, it is confirmed for her that her friend has died, and then she goes on this vengeance quest that we are going to kill that, and I am going to get revenge. Mm-hmm. Impressive. Um, and then Steve shows up at the end, and, she, like, Nancy is legit about to shoot him in his perfect oh, yes. hair. That was and, I'm just, you know, I'm rooting for her so much because I feel like there's so much growth for for her from beginning to end. And, you know, and so the thing I love is that she end up with him again. uh, She ends up. Well, and I can say that's where we turn back into a John Hughes movie, because like in Pretty in Pink, uh, she ends up with, you know, the popular guy, even though her best friend has declared love for her. Uh, And I think that's because there's still there's still immaturity. Because mm-hmm. she is still a high school student, and mm-hmm. popularity and those things 
matter. And also, there's probably the thought that, it, you know, Jonathan probably didn't, like, declare his love for her and was like, please date me instead. Like, he probably... Which is why that pretty in pink parallel doesn't totally work, right? Jonathan is no ducky. He's, he's, uh, he's much, um, he's much more withdrawn. He, um, I got serious mm-hmm. River Phoenixy vibes from, mm-hmm. uh, from Jonathan, um, which maybe I shouldn't mention since you already talked about the cocaine thing <laughs> earlier, Christina. <laughs> um, that's maybe not the great. Of Valley Feedy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, Ducky is much sweeter and, um, there's this scene in the record store where he sings Try a Little Tenderness. Jonathan Byers would never do something like that. Well, I will say he is very sweet with Will. Um, but that that, that is true. Mm-hmm. For, I, for me, the Pretty in Pink is just kind of not even with Jonathan, but just that she ends up with the guy that you didn't want her to end up with. Blaine, that's um, not a name. That's a major appliance. <laughs> Um, but what I will say is, um, after, you know, they do their, you know, Nancy has her amazing growth at one, she's, is still with Steve because she's grown a lot, but she's still a teenager. And again, to me, that's, that's one of the things I appreciate about this show is that it didn't try to, it didn't, it still shows that she has a weakness and that she has faults and that she needs to grow, that she did not complete the entirety of her growth as a human being in Mm -hmm. a six day period. Well, Steve like, also stepped up to the plate a little bit in the end. He, he yeah, definitely he re- did. He redeems himself. I think mm-hmm. that the show forgives him a little faster than I am willing to. Um, yeah. But he, he does work on redeeming himself. Well, and the other thing is that you can at least uh, see the difference in their relationship is that not only does he give Jonathan a camera, which he had, you know, very kind of cruelly broken earlier, but he's sitting in their living room talking with her father they yes. are not sneaking out or him sneaking right. in her window. This is a public thing and he is being embraced by the family, you know. And so mm-hmm. you can really uh, tell the difference for that there as well. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Um, we I could talk about Nancy and, and Barb for hours. Anything else we want to talk about for them before we move on to 11? Because I have a feeling we could talk about 11 for hours too. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to move on to 11 yeah, if you guys are. Okay, no, that's that's great with me. All right, Victoria, tell us about the uh, telekinetic, amazingly bald child that is Eleven. Uh, so yeah, Eleven is great. Um, she is, as you say, uh, telekinetic. She can um, move things with her mind. She can transverse dimensions because she was the subject of lots of kind of sketchy uh, drug-fueled lab experiments when she was in the womb. Um, She gets taken from her mother. Her mother um, is convinced, much like Joyce, actually, um, that she is still alive, but everybody thinks her mom is crazy, no one believes her, and eventually her mother, whose name is Terry, um, becomes catatonic. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I think that we could probably also talk about um, sort of sexism and, and hysteria and, and not believing women um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of those characters. But uh, since I'm supposed to talk about Eleven and kid movie tropes, um, I will do that. I already mentioned E.T., which is all over 
um, all over this plot, but there's definitely a kind of um, buddy movie vibe all the way through with uh, this plot. With the, um, I don't really know whether to say four or five kids because Will is there and then he's not. Um, but the the party, as they're called, as uh, Dustin often calls them, because when you play Dungeons and Dragons, you are a party um, going through going through the game. Um, the most interesting thing to me um, is that Eleven is the only girl in this party. Um, she follows what feminist theorist Katha Pollitt has termed the Smurfette principle um, <laughs> of, of children's entertainment. Uh, Smurfette, also from, uh, from your 80s childhood. The idea <laughs> that um, there are many boys, but only one, uh, only one girl... Um, Could this also be called the Hermione Principle? Mm. Um, well, that's a trio, so it's kind of different. Um, mm. Okay. I I wouldn't I I wouldn't say that that's exactly the same. But um, in in terms of uh of the Smurfette Principle, the the message is um sort of the default is male. Boys get to be individuals. Um, girls just mm-hmm. get to be the girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's kind of the the only role they have here. Um, you you can see this also in this plot when the makeover scene happens, when mm-hmm. um, Mike is putting her in the pink uh, pink dress, blonde wig. That you know you mm-hmm. sort of don't get more feminine archetype than those two things. Um, I, as a, as a woman also laughed out loud seeing a young boy try to figure out how blush worked. Um, (laughs) that was, that was interesting. Um, and then you get a, a kind of adolescent puberty thing where he tells her that she looks pretty and they're kind of trying to figure out, um, what, what the feelings they have for each other are in a very sweet um, adolescent way, which at the end of the series culminates in um, him inviting her to go to the school dance with him. The um, snowball. The snowball. Oh, so cute. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I've kind of talked about how Eleven um, is is forced into some traditional feminine roles, um, but also she subverts her gender in a pretty mm-hmm. huge way. Um of course, she has a shaved head. Um, this confounds a lot of the people in the show who are looking for her because it's a kid with a shaved head, but also a girl. Um, yeah, um, they all think that she's actually initially Will because, like, well, it's a shaved head. Oh, so it must be mm-hmm. boy. Maybe it was Will. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So th- this confounds um, the people of the town. Uh, also, she just exhibits a lot of physical strength, which is something mm-hmm. that the boys... Um, that Dustin and Mike and Lucas um, really can't get over. All of the metaphors that they use for her mm-hmm. um, are male. They talk about Yoda. Um, they talk about, um, they mention uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader and Yoda, lots of Star Wars um, stuff. Uh, whereas I kept thinking of her and her powers in terms of other female characters, um, Sarah, yeah, she's you... very Jean Grey. Oh, that's mm-hmm. true. I hadn't thought she's about very that. Very Jean Grey, Dark she Phoenix. And in fact, I do think that uh, I do think, and Dustin 
slightly makes a reference to that. So he says, you know, do you think that she she was born with her powers like the X-Men? And like so the, the only mm-hmm. thing that she could be, if you're talking about X-Men, is Jean Grey. Or, but you actually, know, when, like Mr. Fantastic. when Dustin mm-hmm. responds to that, um, he doesn't say, uh, Mike doesn't say like X-Men. He says, do you think she was born with her powers? And then Dustin says, like Professor X. Oh, that is. Does he? Okay, hmm. no, maybe he does, and I'm just forgetting that. But um, she definitely is more like Jean Grey. I mean, yeah, she Jean is Grey definitely is Jean Grey, powerful. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even think of Jean Grey. That's totally right. I thought of um, Firestarter, which you mentioned earlier, um, and I also thought of Carrie. Um, the oh yes, I, I, oh yeah. I mentioned the pink dress being like um, the ET Halloween costume. Um, it's also sort of a little kid version of Carrie's prom dress, um, and there is a parallel little kid version of um, of the Carrie revenge scene when everyone is in the gym. Of course, um, Carrie gets humiliated because they pour the pig's blood on her at the prom, and then she burns that mess down. Um, what happens in the gym with Eleven, um, who is also, we should note, marked by blood, um, which I think is, is like the whole thing, blood and powers, it's all a puberty menstruation metaphor, though not as strong as Carrie's is. Um, so she, Eleven, instead of burning the building down, humiliates the bully that uh, messes with Mike and company by making the bully pee his pants. Um, so a, a sort of scaled down uh, gymnasium humiliation um, happens there. And let's see, what else did I want to say? Well, the other thing that you end up with, and I put this, uh, is I find it very interesting that that essentially I feel like Eleven and Will have flipped gender roles between them. So if we think about it, Will is the actually the smallest, the shortest, the most like feminine of all of the children. And when his Joyce is talking to Hopper in the first episode about this and she's telling about him, you know, people call make fun of him. This, you know, his father never got along with him, calls him, calls him queer. People say he's queer. Yeah. Yeah, and then Hopper's like, well, is he? And then Joyce is like, he's missing! And, but yeah, Will is the smallest and most feminine of all the children. Everyone's trying to rescue him. He's the one who's hiding in a castle. Um, he's hiding it when he's in the Upside Down. He's hiding in, uh, which is, you know, the opposite. He has a place that he hides called yeah. Castle Byers. And he's hiding from the monster in a castle waiting to be rescued. I didn't think about that. That's good. That's and true. And then though, Eleven, though has- we should say in he's he's a mage in Dungeons and Dragons. So mages live in castles. Um I mean I'm I'm picking up what you're putting down with the damsel in distress thing. Um and I think that's right. But also he's a mage and mages live in castles. Well, and that's you know, I, I will see to your uh superior knowledge on that. But and the other thing again is Eleven she, you know, she has a shaved head, and it's the shortest of any of the boys. All of the boys have much longer hair than she does. You know, if you think about it. That's true. Mm-hmm. They, they all have this long, floppy... Well, I mean, Lucas has kind of a... Lucas's hair is, is kind of a, a, a smaller, kind of, like, very closely uh, tight afro. But, uh, you know, we, yeah, all we, the other boys... Because he's African-American. Yes, and because if we, he's African-American. And if we had more time, I wish we could talk about why there is apparently one black family in Hawkins, Indiana, and that's it. Um, but, um, 
all the other boys have like floppy like page boy like haircuts they all have much longer hair than 11 does and um, which again i find very interesting and a, kind of part of that uh, a bit of that gender flip and that in the end we have basically 11 is she's the one who is constantly saving the boys you know she saves them from bullies you know twice um, the guy, you know, when the at the very end, when the Demogorgon is coming to get them, it is her, you know, her sacrifice. Yeah, she sacrifices saves herself them all, um, for the good of the company. And so I, I do think that that so to me, that's one of the things I always think about is that this very flipped gender role. Of, and that even though when Eleven is wearing the dress and have, you know, that's kind of that's kind of her MO when she's kind of out in the world. But if we think about the things that she does when she's most powerful, she's not wearing the feminine dress. She, you know, she's out of it. She's in that very basic hospital gown. Or, you know, or the sort of super unisex, neutral colored, um, weighted bathing suit singlet thing. Yeah. And then even, and one of the things I was going to say about the, the pink dress, and maybe this is just because I wasn't there in the eighties. And so maybe this is actually how people wore it. And I just didn't realize people dress like that. Um, she has the pink dress and the blonde wig on, but she has on like knee high athletic socks and like tennis shoes and like an athletic jacket. So she has like the feminine dress, but she also has what I would consider like very masculine boy clothes too but maybe because they're cobbling it together right like yeah, they, but they will... steal nancy's dress but her shoes probably wouldn't be the same size yeah, so they're but... taking mike's or whoever's shoes and socks but she does have an but she does have a but i think that's showing she does have a mix of masculine and feminine um sure. going on with her and but and before then... we before we yes. leave this can i say one more thing of course. Um, so something that I meant to mention earlier, um, I, I talked about E.T., um, the, the other 80s kid movie that, that uh, is pretty strong here is The Goonies, um, and I think you can see that the most in the scene, it's in an early episode, like three or maybe two, um, where Mike, Lucas, and Dustin explain to Eleven what it means to be a friend. Um, so they're, they're defining the concept of friendship and they say that it is uh, always keeping your promises, that friends tell the truth and never lie to each other, that friends um, let each other borrow their best, most prized toys, and um, after they say always keep your promises, they say, and especially um, your spit swears, which are, are the most important. And that to me, like... I mean, they didn't say Goonies never say die, but they basically did. Um, this idea that, um, that that's what friendship is, spit swears and, uh, and exchanging Star Wars toys, um, is, is such, a, such a kid and, and such a young boy um, idea of what it is to be a friend to someone. Whereas Eleven um, ha- has a much, a much deeper, a much um, mature concept of friendship uh, because she's the one who ultimately um, sacrifices herself at the end of the series. You know, greater love hath no man, right? Than to lay oh, down exactly. his life for his friends. Well, and the thing that I that is really compelling about the show is that even though all of these separate storylines do come about because of an initial event, which is L like does something so outstanding and amazing with her mind that it like 
rips a tear in like space and time and brings this monster out you each of the stories feel very separate even though kind of intellectually we kind of we know that they're that they're kind of all tied and it is very amazing to me how they're separate and then they just have this amazing 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 merger at the very end and so you see see 11 with Joyce and Nancy and at the very end um you know 11 is in the kind of that uh jerry rigged um uh pool uh, uh pool um and you know she's getting very scared and you see Joyce comforting her and you're just sitting there like oh that's probably the first time anyone's ever mothered her ever and so I thought of she, that too. and so she is able to uh, continue doing it because she has this this comfort and like strength that is being given to her by another by another person especially by another woman by a mother who she's never had mm-hmm. before and I just I, I I find that uh really really intriguing and then at the end we have you know Nancy and them trying to you know blow up the Demogorgon and then Joyce and Hopper going into the upside down to rescue Will and we kind of get this nice like and then Bo at the end of it even though Eleven is gone and I've like I said I've seen it about four times I still cried when uh like Eleven's gone um and you kind of get this nice little bow and then at the very end you see like pops up a little slug and he kind of looks up and he's like it's he's resigned because you know what he this is not the first time this has happened so i find that i find that really uh intriguing Mm, can i just add my favorite scene real quick and of course with regard to uh, 11 was when they were shooting this monster with the slingshot that they called a what did they call it a wrist rocket wrist rocket and they were just trying to and I thought oh maybe they'll hit it in the center like in a video game and he'll die and then of course though you know she's the one who completely destroys it but that was so great yeah and it was there is this very David versus Goliath because Lucas has it and you know they have like four stones and I'm like oh maybe maybe and then he they do it he it hits him like once or twice and on the third one he's going to do it and he shoots and then he's just the Demogorgon is just thrown against the back wall and the um and it's just yeah by 11 and it's just vaporized and the thing that uh and 11 has done not only can she move things in her mind she has killed in this series i I didn't go through and count but she kills a couple of dozen people and breaks people's arms horribly blood everywhere gruesome Mm -hmm. yeah like people are bleeding out of their eyes she's breaking people's arms she's like you know caught like she and so there is this sense of like you're wondering as you're watching her story, like how is she gonna go? Like is she gonna be end up being Carrie? But and she could be, except she could have been, except she found friends and she found support and she found community, and that's what helps prevent her from completely going there, even though she obviously could. And in fact, I saw I've mentioned several times on here various like YouTube videos about Stranger Things. There was a very funny one and I'll put it in the show notes uh, called is um, is Eleven stronger than a Jedi? And so that's awesome. It was there's a series called Because Science. They take nerdy questions like that. And so what they do is they compare the force that uh, like Yoda would have had to do to like 
levitate Luke's X-Wing in the uh, out of the swamp in Dagobah, and they compare the amount of energy that um, Eleven would have had to do to flip the van, and they determine that the like the telekinetic power that Eleven demonstrates is more than any of the telekinetic power that you see any of the Jedi's use in the Star Wars universe. Nerd love. Yeah. That's so um, cool. Yeah, and so they didn't include like force lightning or anything like that as part of it, but they're just like the the, the ability and the, the amount of energy and work done flipping this is this much greater than what Yoda does. And they hold that up in Star Wars is like, can you believe how magnificent this is? And Eleven does it like it's nothing. And I know all this because I'm a huge nerd. We we like nerds around here. Okay. All right. All right, uh, ladies, we've had a great discussion so far. Um, as for passing on, Christina, is there anything that you would really recommend that our uh, listeners check out if they if they love Stranger Things? What should they read or view? I would like to recommend the X Files. Um, as somebody from my generation, I, when I first started teaching, I watched it on Friday night because I was completely fried from teaching high schoolers. And when I first saw, saw Dana Scully, and she was wearing glasses, I remember hearing um, talk about, uh, what was that show with the comedy that you guys were talking about, that the name of it escapes me, with Tina Fey and her glasses, that comedy. 30 Rock. 30 Rock, 30 Rock yes. When I saw a woman on TV who was smart wearing glasses, I was it kind of changed my world. Now, that shows you that that was like 19, you know, 90 whatever that was um and how far we've come since then but that was a big deal to me and obviously there's so much of the gore and the type of thing that strangers do stranger things is doing is in the x-files awesome victoria what about you uh i am going to recommend uh, an article that talks about actually part of stranger things that we didn't get to mention um but that is very important um, it's a, a Gizmodo article that discusses how the Duffer Brothers got the rights to uh, to the song Should I Stay or Should I Go, um, which becomes a, a sort of central focal point of the relationship between Will and Jonathan and the way that Will communicates from the upside down. Um, really cool article, talks about kind of the, the finer points of... Um, how television shows get made behind the scenes and um, the the kind of truth fudging you might have to do um, to to make uh, make something sound or look the way you want it. Uh, so I will uh, I will share that article from Gizmodo in the show notes. All right. Um, and for me, I've mentioned it several times. Uh, there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of really great in-depth uh stuff on uh, YouTube because everyone loves this series. So one, uh, I'll, I'll link to a uh, video over kind of the theory of nostalgia and the role that uh, toys play in this uh, show. And then also I'll uh, add the link to the um, is 11 stronger than a Jedi because that, that's really cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Christian feminist podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. 
The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Christina Bieber-Lake and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Sarah Davis. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the Poisonwood Bible. Until then, in, essential, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>